We're continuing our uh, series through Genesis and uh, our series, which is called The God of Promise. And uh, we've been looking at the life of Jacob. And so this morning we come to our, our third sermon on Jacob's life, which comes from Genesis chapter 29, a very uh, fascinating story and a page turner about uh, a double uh, wedding, wedding night, so to speak. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis 29, and we'll be talking about the whole chapter, but let's just start at uh, verse 15 this morning. I'll read through the end of the chapter. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female uh, servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban uh, gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived and bore again a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This is the word of the Lord. So there was a, a study done in 2020 about the relationship between life satisfaction and advertisements. And it was performed by the University of Warwick in England, and they uh, looked at the life satisfaction of more than 900,000 citizens from 27 European countries uh, spanning the years 1980 to 2011. And what they did is they took the national average spending on advertisements, 
and they were trying to find some sort of relationship to see how uh, the amount of spending a nation gives to advertising impacts uh, life satisfaction. And their conclusion, after all the study, was this, advertising makes us unhappy. (laughs) You may not be surprised to hear that, but you may be surprised to know that in the United States, uh, we are the most advertised to people in the history of the world. You see, the study I just referred to is only looking at European countries, and the top spending country of the Europeans would have been the United Kingdom, which spends a whopping $38 billion each year on advertisements. And the United States, uh, leading the world here again in spending for advertisements, we spend every year not $38 billion in advertisements, but $285 billion in advertisements. So there is bad news. That is 7.5 times more than the UK. And so the bad news is this. Somehow, some way, if the research is true and it seems to be, then we are at least seven times sadder than the British. <laughs> but there is good news. And uh, the good news is what we see in Genesis 29, that there is, there is a path to life satisfaction that's not just a, a, cheap, a cheap ad, but something true, something real. And that's what we see in this, this text, is that the path to life satisfaction Real life satisfaction comes from seeing God's providence. So our sermon in one sentence is this, seeing God's providence in our pain leads to praise. Seeing God's providence in our pain leads to praise. And there will be three points, of course, all with the alliteration P, uh, providence, pain, and praise. So the first point is this, seeing God's providence. That's a big theological word, providence. Perhaps you've heard it. The basic idea is this, that God is in complete control. That's what providence means. It means that God knows everything that's going to happen. God allows everything that does in fact happen. But even beyond that, God has ordered everything that happens in such a way that he has a purpose for it. Nothing happens apart from God's plan. The uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, a group of theologians, wrote this in the 1600s, they defined providence this way. They said, providence is God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. So providence is, is God's holy, wise, and powerful way of preserving his creatures, of causing them to exist and to be what they are, but, but also governing them in ordering them, in all their actions, everything that they do for his own glory. Jesus himself talks about providence in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. And here's how Jesus, in his characteristically awesome Jesus way, describes it. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Apparently, you could buy two sparrows for one penny. Inflation has really messed that up for us. It's no longer true today, but that's not the point. The point is that a bird worth only half a cent is, is important to God. It falls under his providence. To modernize it, have you ever seen a penny on the ground? Well, the point is this. That penny would not be there apart from the providence of God. The precise location of pennies is part of God's providence, 
Everything that happens is part of God's providence. But Jesus goes even further and says that the hairs of your head, the very hairs on your head are numbered. Now, for some of you, I'm looking at your heads and you're like, well, I could do that easily myself. But <laughs> the, the point is not that Jesus counts better than we do, but it's that God knows you. He not only knows everything about the world in general, he knows everything about you specifically. And it means at least this, that God is very interested in you. God is, in fact, more interested in you and in your life than you're even interested in yourself, unless you've cared to stop and count all your hairs at some point. You see, uh, God, in his providence, he loves us, he cares for us, he orders everything that comes to pass in our life, even the decisions that we make. Consider Proverbs 21, verse one. It says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the, the Lord uh, like a stream of water. He turns it wherever he will. So go turn on the faucet and put your hand underneath it and see if you can move the water to one side or the other. The idea is that the heart of, of kings is in God's hand, like a stream of water, and he turns it wherever he, he will. You could update that to say the, the heart of presidents is in the hand of the Lord. So the placement of pennies or the policies of presidents, all of it falls under the providence of God. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, but it is true, right? And if we're going to understand Genesis 29, we have to understand providence. We have to understand what God is doing. And it's easy to see God's providence in the, in the first half of uh, the chapter. If you uh, look back at the verses uh, 1 through 14 we didn't read, God's providence is really on display because Jacob is making his way into the land of his extended family. And he's going because Isaac has sent him away to go to his uncle Laban so that he can find a daughter of Laban so that he can, uh, he can marry uh, her. And what happens in our text this morning is that Jacob goes to the land, and it's a pretty big place, the land of Haran, and he goes to a random well, and he goes up to the well, and there happen to be some shepherds. And so he says to the shepherds, do you know Laban? And they say, we do. We do know Laban. So that's providential, the fact that these uh, random uh, strangers at a random well know the guy he's looking for. But it goes even more uh, providential than that. They not only know Laban personally, but at just that moment, they say, oh, yeah, and look, here comes Rachel, uh, Laban's daughter. And so Jacob uh, not only has found people who know Laban, the guy he's looking for, but now he's found a daughter of Laban who he puts a wet kiss on in just a moment. But also providentially is that uh, Jacob, who is kind of an indoorsy type of person, uh, goes to this well and removes this stone that it would take multiple people uh, to move. One commentator calls this a a miracle of Samson-like strength suddenly uh, coming over Jacob. And that lets him make a great first impression on his uh, soon-to-be bride, soon-to-be father-in-law's family. And so Jacob finds himself a home, a place to work, uh, and the woman of his dreams, all just kind of in a moment. And we would look at that And we would say, look at God's providence. Look how God has provided. I'm sure if you think about your own life, you would probably, uh, thinking of how God's provided for you, you would probably sit back and think of all the good things that God has given you. And you should. That is a way to see God's providence. But what about God's providence when we come to verse 21? In verse 21, this 
tragic story begins to unfold. And the events go from happy to horrific. The question is not just a question for Jacob, but a question for us. The question is, is God still working just as much when we suffer as when things are going well? We can all say that God is the God of providence when he does good things in our lives, but he's still the God of providence when bad things happen, when things don't go the way that we want. At the um, Thursday morning men's study this past uh, week, Scott uh, said something very profound, and uh, I wrote it down. It was so profound. He said this. He said, if you want to be a wise Christian, then you're going to have to live with a lot of tension in your theology. If you want to be a wise Christian, you're going to have to live with a lot of tension in your theology. The less tension you have, the less biblical you become. And I think that's wise because as Christians, there's so many things that we have to hold in tension. For instance, we have to hold in tension the fact that God is sovereign. He holds the heart of kings in his hand like a stream of water. And yet we have a free will. And yet we choose and we have responsibility. There's a tension that Jesus is fully God and fully man. There's a tension that you're a saint and a sinner. There's a, there's a tension that you're saved already, but not yet in, in some sense, but probably the most challenging tension in the Christian life is the problem of pain. It's the tension of this. If God is good, then why does it hurt so much? If God is good, then, then why is life not turning out the way I thought it would? Why is there pain? And C.S. Lewis has written a great book, actually. It's called The Problem of Pain, and I can't possibly uh, do justice to the subject the way he does, but the short answer is that in a fallen world filled with sin, pain is a fact of life. And yet, God is the author of good. But C.S. Lewis points out that God is the author of good in two ways. He's the author of the simple good things in life, the things that he can just give to us and provide to us, like, like a wife and a family and food and, and a beautiful sunrise and, and jobs and the kindness of random strangers. These are simple goods that God gives to us. But God is also the author of the complex good, a kind of good that can only come through suffering, a kind of good that we can't get apart from trials and from tribulations. And there are many examples of this we could talk about, and probably some in your own life you could think of how God brought good out of a, compl- of a painful situation, uh, children being born, winning in a sport, or winning in a war. I mean, th- think of the complex good of having a free country where we can even gather like we are. But the ultimate complex good of course, which God gives us, is the gospel, is the, is the fact that on the cross, God was giving us a complex good, that Jesus was the best and greatest man there ever was, who, if anyone deserved to live a life free of suffering, it would have been Jesus who never sinned against anyone, even God, and spent his life ministering to others. And yet Jesus suffered the most painful and inhumane death possible. And not only physically, but he suffered the full wrath of God on the cross. And Acts 2.23 tells us that all of this, according to God's providence, Acts 2.23, Peter is preaching to a group of Jews on the day of Pentecost. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God 
And yet he says, you crucified and killed him. You see, so there's tension right there. There's tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility that Jesus died according to God's perfect providential plan. And yet humans were actually responsible for killing Jesus. But there's also the tension there between God's goodness and God's pain. The best possible good that God could give us was Christ in eternal life through him, but that required pain. You see, to understand the gospel, we have to not only see God's providence, but we have to be able to see God's providence in pain. And that's really the second point today, seeing God's providence in our pain. The, the text is really about that. And uh, everyone has pain in this text, I think. Even Laban, you have to feel like would, uh, would feel a little dirty after you know, selling uh, or, or uh, essentially duping one of his uh, uh, daughters into this marriage. Uh, if he is a human at all, he has to have some sort of remorse. But of all the people who experience pain in this text, it's Leah's pain that's put on display. Leah is the one that the, the text itself kind of lifts up to us, especially in the last five verses. And so I want to talk about Leah's pain. And as I do, my encouragement for you is to think about not if, but how, how your pain in life can relate to Leah's. Because I think as we look at Leah, we see ourselves in the ways that she has suffered. So the first thing we learn about Leah is that she's the oldest sister. Uh, and the second thing we learn is that her eyes are weak. It says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, uh, I probably spent too much time trying to figure this one out for you, but there is a scholar, his name is H.H. Hardy, and he's really done a great job explaining this, uh, what this means. Because some translations, you might even have a footnote, some translations will say, Leah's eyes were soft, perhaps, instead of weak. And so the question is, does she have soft eyes, like she's a lovely person, or she has weak eyes, like one's kind of droopy, or uh, what does it mean that her eyes are weak? And what Hardy says, uh, after doing a, a very extensive word study of not only the Hebrew word for weak, but also the phrase having weak eyes, he points out that uh, what this text is probably saying is that Leah has some sort of visual impairment. You see, at a minimum, what the text is saying is that Leah is not as beautiful as Rachel. Uh, but probably what the text is saying is actually that, that Leah's eyes are weak in the sense that she cannot see well. And the way that Hardy kind of justifies this and points it out is to, is to show you the whole narrative arc of Jacob, how Leah having weak eyes fits into this. Th think about the, the kind of origin story of Jacob, uh, how he deceives his father. And he deceives his father, uh, Isaac, whose eyes are dim. And Jacob's deception is to come to his father whose eyes are dim and to take advantage of him and to wear very hairy sleeves, which seem bizarrely over hairy, but nonetheless, it does the trick. He deceives his father uh, in light of his vision. And in doing so, he usurps the firstborn, okay? Well, it's very interesting that the, the, the uh, judgment, if you will, upon Jacob for that, the providence that God brings into his life is that in this story, Jacob is the one who's blinded. See, Jacob is blinded with love for Rachel. And not only that, in the night, uh, his very wedding night, probably after he's well drunk, it is Leah who comes, not Rachel. And Jacob now has to do exactly what his father did. He can't depend on his eyes to see who is there. And he is duped. You might say that 
he gets married to his own deception. It's a pretty ironic twist. So verse 17, when it says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, you could probably say it like this. It was hard for Leah to see, and it was hard for Rachel to not be seen. Okay, so it's hard for Leah to see at all. She, she has a hard time seeing, and yet for Rachel, it's hard for her not to be seen. She would be an ancient bombshell or something like that. So uh, consider the, the suffering of Leah. Probably she's got some sort of visual impairment. Uh, definitely she has a gorgeous sister uh, that she lives in the shadow of, even though she's, she's the eldest. And, and she also deals with many emotional issues like being unwanted. I mean, think about the fact that for the seven years that Jacob was working so that he could marry Rachel, that's seven more years that nobody wanted to marry Leah, perhaps because she couldn't see or perhaps for some other reason. And then the craziness of this story is that Laban deceives Jacob. The deceiver meets an even greater deceiver. He meets a Laban who beats him at his own game in the morning, it's Leah. But one commentary pointed out, it's possible that even Leah herself is deceived into this marriage. And here's what I mean. If you look at verse 24, uh, there's this weird uh, parenthetical uh, note there. Uh, uh, Laban takes uh, Leah in the evening and brings her to Jacob. And then there's parentheses, Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. There's another a statement like that in verse 29. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. And so one commentator points out, perhaps the giving of a servant was, was a way of, was, was, was a, something you did as part of the wedding in the ancient culture. You're married, you now get this servant. The reason that would be important is because Laban had given already a servant to Leah before the wedding night. And so this is, of course, just a little bit of speculation, but it is possible that Leah herself was duped into thinking that Jacob wanted to marry her. But either way, regardless, it's, it's not the main point because what's for sure is that after they're married, Jacob's upset. He didn't want to marry Leah. Nobody wanted to marry Leah. And so he makes an arrangement with Laban uh, that he will stay married to her for one week, which would have been the traditional ancient wearing, uh, uh, wedding ceremony, And then he wants to marry Rachel, and he does. He marries Rachel seven days later, and then he agrees to work for seven more years to to pay for her. Consider how Leah's life satisfaction would have been negatively influenced with all this. She's not as beautiful as Rachel. She's not loved by Jacob. She probably feels humiliated that the only way that she could even get into a marriage was to dupe someone in the night. And now we're still seven days after her wedding night. Uh, Her husband has married the woman of his dreams who happens to be her gorgeous sister. And now she's still married to them because in the ancient culture, what are you going to do? If you can't see well, for one thing, but also now that you've, you've been married to someone, uh, women did not have as many options. And yet, it's to Leah. It's not to Jacob, who's the patriarch here. It's, it's not to Rachel, who's the bombshell. It's not to Laban, this dark villain. It's to Leah that we see God appear in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. 
It's such a beautiful verse, and the reason it's beautiful is because in this whole chapter, uh, chapter 29, you haven't even seen God mentioned for the whole chapter until right here in verse 31. And what you see is that God sees Leah. God sees her. It tells you that, one, childbearing is primarily a fact of God's providence and not primarily a fact of science. It says God opened her womb. And so in a scientific age, we like to think we have all the answers, but every single scientific fact is only secondarily a fact of science and primarily a fact of God's providence. God loves Leah. He opens her womb. Even when no one else does, when no one else sees her, God sees her. He has the hairs on her head numbered. And what we see in this story is that her pain is not accidental. It's not random It's not forgotten. It's not useless. God remembers Leah. And the point is this, that God remembers you, that that God sees you in your suffering, that God sees you in your unloveliness, that God sees you in your pain. And Leah in the text shows us the path to true life satisfaction. And that's a little bit of narrative flair because Leah is the one who has weak eyes, but it's Leah who gets to see Only Leah in this story sees the purpose of God. And we see that in this this account of her naming her sons. And that brings us to our final point, which is that seeing God's providence in our pain leads to praise. It leads us to praise. So as we watch Leah name her sons, it's kind of difficult because it it touches a nerve and it's hard to see someone in so much pain agonize in this way. Yet God is revealing something to her through her pain. In verse 32, Leah has a son named Reuben. And uh, in Hebrew, that's something like, see, a son, you know, look, a son. And uh, she says, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And she's halfway right. God has looked upon her affliction, but she's wrong that Jacob will not love her now. This doesn't lead to Jacob's uh, love. Her view of God, you could say, is skewed because she doesn't want God yet for God's sake. What she wants deep down more than anything is she wants her husband to love her. And in one sense, it's hard to blame her. I mean, who wouldn't want to be loved by their husband of all people? And yet that's the thing. That's the one thing that she must have. And that makes it the thing that she's really worshiping. And that makes it the thing that functionally is the God of her life. She wants her husband's affection. But having Reuben doesn't bring her that. So she has another son, Simeon, which sounds like the Hebrew word for uh, to hear. And this time she says, the Lord has heard that I am hated and he has given me this son also. You appreciate that Leah's wrestling with God's providence, even though she's coming to wrong conclusions. This time she almost views the son as a sort of compensation, almost like a consolation prize. Like God saying, I can't give you Jacob's affection, but I'll give you another son. How's that? And, uh, because, uh, and uh, she's finding her joy still not in God, but in God's gifts, in the things of life that she can have, like another son. So she has a third son, and she names him Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for attached, because Leah thinks, now my husband will have to be attached to me. At least now he, he will be committed to me. If I can't have his love, at least, at least he'll be committed to me, because I've given him three sons now. And yet, in God's providence, Jacob does not become more attached to Leah. 
In fact, in the next chapter, uh, it, it looks like uh, Jacob actually places an embargo on Leah because she has to actually hire him to sleep with her. So this isn't working out the way she thinks either. So finally, she has one more son, and she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And this is really the whole point of the story. You see, God works in us in three ways often. He works, he does a work in us, and he does a work through us, and he does a work beyond us. And what we can see as we look at Leah's pain, and if we have eyes to see our own, that God often does that as well. He works in us, through us, and beyond us. The way that God works through Leah is really critical to the entire narrative arc, if you will, of Jacob. Because we've already talked about Jacob initially deceives his father because his, his father's eyes are dim. And then Jacob gets, in one sense, married to his own deception. Uh, but that's not the end of the narrative arc for Jacob. In chapter 48, at the very end of Genesis and the end of Jacob's life, it is Jacob who has dim eyes. And now Jacob is sitting here about to bless the two sons of Joseph. And in this story, Jacob uh, perceives correctly. It's, it's, the, it's the finality of that, of that arc, that Jacob goes from deceiver to perceiver. He goes from deceiving to perceiving. And Leah's suffering is instrumental in that. God works through Leah, but God also works beyond Leah in incredible ways. Consider this, the two sons that we just read about Leah having here, Levi and Judah, all of the priests come from the line of Levi, including Moses, for instance. And all of the kings come from the line of Judah. And so even though Leah would never know it, long after she was gone, Moses, David, and Christ all came through this situation, which is a really powerful thing to think about. And yet in our text, the main point is not necessarily about what God does through Leah or beyond Leah, but really the point in the text is the work that God does in Leah, that God leads her to praise. As we close this morning, I want you to think about this. Pain is God's way of weaning us away from the lesser joys of the world and preparing us for the greater joys of heaven. Pain is God's way of weaning us away from the lesser joys of this world and preparing us for the greater joys of heaven. And I am seeing this every single day in the life of my daughter, Eloise, who is currently teething. You guys know what teething is like? I don't remember and I'm thankful for it. It seems to be very painful. I, uh, she's teething and she's being weaned away from you know, formula and milk to solid foods. So I feel for the moment like an authority on the subject. You see, the goal of weaning, as I understand it, is to be transformed. It's to be transformed from a toothless uh, creature into a toothed one. And uh, what a dreadful creature they are when, when they bite you. And I think that having teeth is one of life's greatest and most underrated joys. <clears throat> because, think about it, having teeth allows you to experience a world of pleasures that you could not otherwise. Just the other night, I uh, was cooking a steak for Eloise. That's not entirely true. I was cooking a steak for myself. But I gave her a piece of my steak. And this was the first time she's ever had a really nice piece of steak. And she's, she's you know, generally a happy baby to begin with. But as she, as she ate this piece of steak for the first time, what I saw in her face was rapture. <laughs> just, 
rapture. And uh, she's nodding her head now. So now when we feed her food she likes, she'll just, she'll just nod. And it's just, it's just awesome. But the fact is this, there is no weaning without teething. And in a similar way, God, through our pain, is it not possible that God is weaning us away from the simple pleasures of this life in order to prepare us for the complex pleasures of heaven and the highest pleasure of all himself? And you see, that's what praise really is. Praise is pleasure. There are two books about praise in the Bible. There's the book of Psalms and there's the Song of Solomon. And if you are wise, then you will understand that they're describing the same kind of experience, which is worship, which is rapture. You see, praise is the highest form of pleasure that a creature designed to worship God can experience. Praise is not the sterile thing we do. It's not a half-awake thing, uh, half-awake thing we do on Sundays from time to time. Praise is what you were created for. I think of the time I was in the Grand Canyon and I was just, I was just looking around. I had the, the privilege to hike it. And I'm just in the middle of the Grand Canyon. And it, it, that was just praise. It was like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> you know, I've never seen anything like this. I feel redefined and satisfied in a new way. And really that was just being you know, surrounded by a bunch of rocks. Imagine what it will be like to be in the presence of God. <laughs> And that's what you were designed for. Last night, by, by God's providence, I guess, I cut my thumb on a knife while uh, unloading the dishwasher. And uh, it hurts this morning, and I can't text with my right thumb, which is challenging, and it, and, and it kind of hurts. But I don't, I don't know what your pain is today. Sometimes in this life, we don't know why we have pain. I imagine that your pain, whatever it is, is far worse than a minor uh, cut. But what I do know is this. My prayer for you and for myself is this. We need the courage of God to face our pain today because tomorrow in the new world, we will see perhaps for the first time God's providence over all of the pain in our lives. And that will be a source of so much joy for you and for me that it will be impossible to not praise. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who, leaves us, uh, who leads us from pain to praise. I pray, God, that uh, in a special way that you could be a balm to our hearts this morning as, as we think of the pain that we are experiencing in this life, as we often don't have answers for how it all plays out, for how you work in us and through us and beyond us. God, I pray that you would increase our faith uh, increase our faith in the gospel, increase our faith in your goodness. And oh God, would you turn us into a people who are able to weather the darkest pains and be a people that can sing with the, the loudest voices of praise in Christ's name, amen.